Hello, and welcome to Getting It. The conversation where we try to understand life just that little bit more. My name's Dan. And my name is Saban. And we're both medical students based in London. And in this episode, we reflect on our experiences at medical school so far, the different ways we can approach learning a broad field and how learning ties together with teaching and should always be connected. Good afternoon, Saban. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Whoa, 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 I want to start again. I want to start again. No, no, I've got a good idea. <laughs> All right. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Asserted. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. Um, or, or good evening is another way I could say it. Good morning. Oh, dear. Okay, wait. Take three, take three, take three, take three. Okay. Hello there, Saban. Why, hello there, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing pretty good, actually. You know, got a bunch of Amazon and Ikea deliveries, which is always nice. It's oh, like, it's Cyber Monday. Cyber Monday, Black Friday, that kind of thing. The, mm. the delivery dude was, he, he, he was having his job like pulled hard <laughs> because he was I bet off. the delivery dudes are shook at the moment. Yeah. They are working major. Yeah. Okay. Actually, for the first time in ages, on, on Prime Delivery, like the estimates in terms of delivery date is coming out to like four, four or five days later rather than, it's usually like next day each time. So it was, it was quite interesting. That's just a straight result, isn't it? That's just a straight result of the, the Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Yeah, it was quite interesting because just in my head, I was like, what the hell? It's going to take like four days to deliver. I was like, why is it taking so long? I was like, what kind of, why, why is it like that? I was like, wow, that's quite a privileged position to be in where you're so used to next day delivery that now it's going to take two or three days. And I'm like, wow, this is like, what kind of bad service is this? But it's a ridiculous concept. Like even in the space of our lifetime, things have completely changed in that way where nowadays if I lose something or if something breaks, like my phone, um, what do you call it? My phone protector broke last week and it was just so not a problem because I literally just went on Amazon just very quickly. Oh, there's one for like a fiver. Very nice. Yeah. Just at my door the next morning. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And, I- and at times like this, I mean, yeah, like I can imagine the the having to wait a couple of days longer being an annoyance it's, it's crazy yeah just looking as back in the a few fact that it's, anno- it's an annoyance is reflects badly on myself <laughs> rather than the actual no system. no no um, but you have the perspective to realize why you have the perspective to realize why uh, why your your frustration is only relative to the time period we find ourselves in. yeah because i was i was looking at spray paint and i was like huh, why is it taking so long i was getting so irritated and then i was like oh wait it's really not that deep but yeah and uh, i don't know the, the entire infrastructure of Amazon and the whole delivery system, at least in the UK, like pretty much anything you can get next day delivery. Or if you order it later on in the day, then it'll come, you know, the following day after. That's absolutely insane. And I don't know, people like get annoyed at Jeff Bezos being so rich and everything. I mean, one, a lot of his net worth is in Amazon, but then he did also make, you know, the best delivery infrastructure in the world, the whole e-commerce thing he, he changed the entire world with it basically so i must I, admit um i do think out of all the monthly subscriptions you can get the amazon prime subscription is i find it's very worth the money yeah i mean if you i'm answer, not plugging it i'm not plugging <laughs> it i'm just saying <laughs> yeah well I, I guess we are on the student prime as well so it, mm. it helps in that sense but i don't know sometimes it irritates me it's like yeah okay yeah there, there's a lot of you know controversial things when it comes to that much wealth and there's a the whole tax and like, oh they don't pay any tax and stuff Okay, it's a lot more nuanced than most people actually understand it to be. And I, that, that's not, I, I'm not trying to say that I do understand all of it. I don't. But I think a lot of people are very quick to jump onto the cancel train and just, you know, wipe, wipe people away like that just because they have a lot of money. But 
I don't know, if you are so against Jeff Bezos having so much money, just try boycotting all of Amazon services. But it actually goes deeper than that because a lot of Amazon's revenue comes through Amazon Web Services. And a lot of people don't really know that side of Amazon unless you're some kind of developer or something. Because, mm. okay, so one, you'd have to boycott, you know, Amazon Prime and all of that stuff, you know, no Kindle, no Audible, no none of that stuff. Oh, none, none of no the Audible. Stuff. So, and just don't deliver off there if you don't want Amazon to take their cut off the deliveries, you know, they take from any orders placed on Amazon. No Prime Music. I'm just kidding. <laughs> to that. Anyway, oh sorry, God, carry what on. What a flop that <laughs> is. But no, and uh, then there's the, what other services? Yeah, okay. So, so there's all of that stuff, right? Just the classic delivery stuff, all the books the audio libraries, all of that, all of that just don't use. And then there are loads of apps you probably can't use that. I wouldn't be able to use Notion. Why? Because they host a lot of their stuff. All of the files are saved onto Amazon ah. Web Services services. Loads of companies have their entire databases saved on Amazon Web Services. So you won't even technically be able to use those apps because that actually brings out a larger percentage of their revenue. So yeah, it, they're, they're, they're still doing really good today, think. aren't they? Hmm? They're still doing. They're still. The trajectory is still really positive for them, isn't it? As well? Amazon. Am I right in thinking that? I yeah. don't really know much about it. Yeah, I mean, they're they're so as in Amazon in general. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Amazon's so big at this point that yeah, they're just they're leading in e-commerce and stuff. It's hard to kind of knock them out because at this point, you know. They, well, at least like Jeff Bezos and stuff, just has money to kind of spend. You know, he's doing Blue Origin with the whole space. He's doing like an Elon Musk with, you know, SpaceX kind of equivalent. Yeah, Except I saw that. He, he has a different kind of image in terms of like his kind of game plan is slightly different. But yeah, <laughs> he just made a rocket company. When you have that kind of money, it gets kind of funny. Like you just can't be stopped at that point almost. So yeah. Yeah. The but, other the other company I was thinking about was um, Nike recently. I only just clocked how mm -hmm. they've changed their identity quite a lot in the last few years because nowadays they're very luxury, aren't they? Like if I buy a Nike item of clothing, it will cost me quite a bit of money and it would be a very nice item of clothing, I think. So yeah, that's something I only realized going on the Nike store these days. They've changed the brand almost. And I was watching a video about it yesterday on YouTube and um, it, they were saying how Nike changed the whole structure of the company um so to make each um each section of the company uh, uh directly in communication with two other, with two other sections at any given time mm. um and it makes this like matrix um it's really cool but it, it's so clever and through like i don't know big changes in the last few years nowadays their control over the sports market is crazy so yeah like um yeah. i don't know it's just uh, I, that's a very random thing to bring up but no, I, I thought it was very I have yeah. I get what you mean by Nike becoming a luxury thing, but it, I think it's because of be, they've become more involved in streetwear actively because, you know, back a few years ago, take it, you know, five, five to 10 years ago, they were still focused mostly on sport, but people started just wearing that stuff as streetwear and promoting it as streetwear, you know, say with the trackies and stuff, just because they made good quality stuff, functional stuff, and it just kind of looked good. So people just wear it around as streetwear. Um, yeah. And obviously the more kind of vintage stuff, like all the classic shoes, all the classic clothes and, you know, say with the Jordans as well, people would collect them and then wear them as streetwear and because they were limited and stuff, it was like a luxury. So they kind of, you know, latched on to the rising tide and went yeah. along with it and kind of rebranded in that sense. But yeah, I never really actively noticed it. I didn't see it blatantly like, oh, it was a pretty smooth transition. I have to give them that because now that I think about it, yeah, I can see it how, like I can kind of see how it went. But I didn't actually notice it straight out. No, neither did I. To me, they are um, they're like luxury sportswear nowadays. To mm. me, 
Like, um, they're, if I'm buying Nike running shoes or if I'm buying Nike, I don't know, football shirt, it will, a sports shirt, it will be nice. The Nike tennis clothes, the Nike court stuff is is quite expensive and it's all high quality. So if you compare that with Puma or Adidas these days, mm. yeah, it's just it's going in a different direction. I, th- I think opinion. they've always had high quality stuff, though. At least that's why, you know, for ages, I've always been like just... I always prefer Nike over it just because the quality is so good. But that's, it's been like that mm. almost as far as I can remember. That's why I've just, I'd always get like the Nike socks of the other, you know, sports brand just because yeah. they, they would just last longer. They'd feel better and everything. Uh, so I think that's, they've just maintained that, but it, I guess they've probably increased it as well. And they probably just have a larger diversity in terms of their quality set. And they've probably just gone past the competitors to a certain extent as well. So I don't know. I haven't really very cool. bought much new Nike or just sports gear in general. Anyway, okay. Um, Preamble over. <laughs> yeah, and just quick interlude. Um, and then I want to just uh, discuss one thing with you today uh, in particular, which is med school. Because looking back at the episodes we've done so far, we haven't actually really talked very much about what we do most of the time, which is actually being students. Mm. So, yeah, I think um, at the moment, for me personally, I'm on a new block, I'm on a new rotation at a new hospital. And I'm really enjoying it. And at no point in med school have I had this much fun. And yeah, it's just made me look back on the last few years and realize we've been um, we've been med- we've been med students for a while, and a lot has changed since we started. And yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to reflect on a few checkpoints in the process and see what you think about it as well. Especially going to unis with, in my opinion, quite different identities. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think one is a bit more stringent than the other. Um, I wouldn't say stringent. More... I'd say they have different outlooks on how to go about teaching it. Well, I guess Imperial being very science-driven, at least in the early years and going into a lot of detail. I mean, I obviously don't know how much detail they go into uh, into it at King's, but I just assume it's probably not as deep. At least from other com- like conversations I had with, like say with you, and with other students at different unis, they haven't gone quite as detailed in some of the science in the preclinical years and years one and two. Um, but yeah. Kings is basically, you take all the hard bits from Imperial and triple them. No, I'm joking. Oh. Um, it's, I, got I, I think just the identity is different, simply. Like um, the whole outlook on how to teach medicine is slightly different. And to be fair, none, neither is better. We need both, in my opinion. Um, but... I've really, in, I can only speak for myself, obviously. I wouldn't pick anywhere else to have done medicine than Kings. It suits me to a T, in my opinion. And it's given me space to grow as I want to grow. And I'm actually just so grateful to go to Kings. I really mean that. Um, especially last year, I intercalated at Imperial, as you know, obviously. And I got to see a bit of how things can be taught at a different institution, especially one more on the other side of the extreme, like uh, Imperial. And I can definitely see the merits in it, but it's tough. It's tough. It was hard to go there, even for a year. It's not easy what you guys do. Yeah. yeah okay. But I think just intercalating and doing your BSc, your intercalated BSc, is very different to just normal medicine, just in general. Because for me, it's very different compared to the the first three years as well. So mm. there's that aspect. And two, yeah, it, it's. I think there are a lot of factors because one is different to the previous normal year, preclinical years you've been doing. And I guess one clinical year at that point. So there's that kind of jump and twist. And 
you hadn't really experienced a BSc at King's either. So maybe mm. it was just the style of things you have to do because there's a lot of paper reading, a lot of deep detailed science anyway. So maybe it would have been similar at King's. This isn't me trying to defend Imperial because I, I'm, you know, finding it tough in this fourth year, in this intercalated year. Um, but I guess it's probably for different you. reasons though. I'm inclined to agree with you to an extent, but a lot of the teachers we had are teachers from the med school. And ultimately, a lot of the experience, I would say, was just the imperial experience at the same time. You know, there are certain traits in a university that will carry through all courses you do, obviously. Um, just the approach to learning. I know that sounds super vague, but um, do, do you kind of get what I mean? Just the way that they... Um, the way that they expect you to learn. I understand that in the BSc year, it's more research-focused anyway, but... Um, uh, the whole structure of it w was different, basically. The, like, the whole structure of the faculty is different. And I found it a lot more... Um, a lot more challenging, I would say. But at the same time, I'm not trying to detract from King's because King's at the same time isn't easy. Um, but I think there's a bit more flexibility. Again, it's hard to know what is Imperial overall and what is just the course I was taking. But yeah... Um, uh, for the rest of the episode, I'll, I won't really compare Imperial to Kings and I'll more just speak about my experience at Kings because I feel mm. more qualified to talk about that. Um, and yeah, uh, I want to just uh, take you through maybe a couple of checkpoints if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Is that all right? Sounds good. Okay, so let's start with um, their five-year courses, right? Both, if you take away the intercalated Oh, degree. yeah, yeah. And first year for us was... Um, it was mainly lecture-based. Uh, a lot of just broad overviews of biochemistry, anatomy, um, how to speak to a patient, really, but no ice. time. Yeah, ice. <laughs> ice. Yeah. If in doubt, just ice. That's basically just, what we got taught for two years of clinical communication, was just ice. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've heard things uh, in every history-taking lesson in first year to do with ice. Yeah. I can remember that clearly. But I mean, um, it's what I found crazy is these days, so I'm in fourth year of MBBS now, fifth year of med school overall or fifth year of uni. I look at the students around me and some people, and it's the classic uni thing where people in your class, some people you've just barely even met before and they've been in your class for years. Yeah. Um, but some people I've, I know, um, like for example, today I was sat with uh, a girl who was my clinical partner in second year and I was with her the first time I went into hospital and this was only in 2017 as a med student first time I went into hospital as a second year med student and today I was with her in a small group teaching class she was so knowledgeable she felt it felt like I was sat next to a doctor today she really genuinely knew what she was doing she was so comfortable I was speaking to her about how her day was she said um the good bits the bad bits she started off with the good bits, which was like, she was like, I succeeded with the cannulation today. I was like, well done. Mm. And I was like, nice. I was like, what about the bad bit? She was like, I failed with three. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I, we said, you, you don't have to focus on the bad bits. Just focus on that one patient you did get. Um, but the whole experience of going into um, an ED, for example, an emergency department, and actually being a part of the team now is really, um, it's, it's such a weird feeling because it's the first time that I've finally started to feel like I know what I'm doing a little bit. And it's so motivating feeling like you're a part of the team and 
that things are starting to come together. And it's just, yeah, it's making me really reflect on how I've approached med school and how each student, especially at King's, again, I can't speak for Imperial, but at King's, each student has done it in their own way. Do you get what I mean? What do you mean they've done? What have they done in their own way? So they've approached the whole um, med school in their own way. Like you at King's, there's no attendance monitored for lectures, but for example, okay. Mm, yeah, so same. you have people who don't turn up to any lectures. You have people who go to all the lectures. Even placement is not monitored, really. I shouldn't really say that. It is mm. monitored, of course, but you have to self, you have to do it on your own. It's more and done like informally where make sure you show your face enough to the consultants that, you know, they'd be fine with signing you off or something or at least that's how it yeah, is it's imperial. along those lines yeah yeah it's along those lines so you can kind of yeah you have to go in um at some point but you don't have to be going in every day you don't have to clock in and uh, clock out at the end of the day so you do have some students who don't go to anything really and you have some students who go to everything and more um and yeah ultimately because of that and the fact that the societies at kings are, are very active as well you end up with people who um just are in completely different social circles, work at a completely different rate. Um, and it's just fascinating to see everyone sort of over the years, all in their own way, evolving into doctors. Because for me, um, this might sound, I don't know if this sounds arrogant, but um, med school, a lot of the time, hasn't been my number one biggest interest, right? Like, um, I understand that's what I've spent most of, more. I've, I've probably spent more time doing medicine than anything else over the last few years. But to be honest, I would say that uh, I I love I love doing languages more. I love reading about geography, random stuff like that, music and, and sport even more. There were times at uni where I was doing tennis more than anything else. I'd be going yeah, to play that. tennis. Yeah, yeah, I'd be playing tennis every day. I'd literally basically every day for months on end. And I'd be going to uni, sort of. Um, I'd be clocking in, obviously doing what I had to do. But outside of that, it wasn't really on my mind. I saw myself as someone who played tennis first and foremost. And someone who also studied on the <laughs> I side. I play as tennis well. and also go to med school on the side. <laughs> yeah, but that sounds. I'm, let me just clarify. I'm not a good tennis player, um, and I'm not saying I do any of these things particularly well. And that's another thing about med school, which I didn't realise going into it. I thought going from A levels that med school was going to be harder, in the same way that A levels were hard. Now, I'm not. I'm not here to say that med school is not hard, but I'm here to say that it's hard in a different way. It's hard, in my opinion, because you have to be very disciplined, and it has to come from yourself. But the concepts, a lot of the time, are not particularly difficult, um, at least not compared to some elements of A-level study even, I would say. Mm -hmm. And um, getting through it isn't terribly hard either if you want to just pass, right? Like, to get 50 yeah. isn't... I, I, I have to be honest. I know people who um, have got 50s all the way through med school, passed every year, just through mainly intuition and, and going over some lectures really not much more than that and it's possible it's perfectly possible and that's what's crazy about it because you have people who do that you know we're talking about the sigmoid curve um, yeah. of improvement where it's really hard to get to the bit where you're improving quickly but then mm. when you get to the top of that to get those last few marks it's really difficult um, I think you're more familiar with the uh, with a, a certain end of that spectrum <laughs> I don't want to add pressure um, with all of our millions of fans expecting high grades oh, from yeah. every year <laughs> um, but um, yeah like um 
it's it's crazy how in the same year group you just have people who've approached the whole year in completely different ways. I know people in my year who spend basically every waking hour, you know, just the super nerds mm. who just work so, so hard and it's very commendable. They end up with an incredible range of knowledge, amazing med students and a lot of them really nice, good people as well. They go into the wards and at this point they're basically, I've seen people who even in third year were almost like, almost like doctors in a way. They'd go onto the ward and they were really useful um, and they were they were appreciated being there. Um, yeah, and I, I know people even now who are still not comfortable in front of a patient. So, yeah, I was. Uh, that's the first thing I wanted to sort of talk about the the massive range in how people approach it. Um, I don't know if you find that similar at Imperial. Do you think that there's a big range in the type of students you get? People who go in all the time and um, so on. Yeah, I, I assume it's the same throughout every single uni as well because everyone is different. They're going to learn in different ways. Everyone has different priorities. So they're just going to go about uni in different ways. The thing that allows you to study medicine and do so many things on the side is because you have medicine as the structured thing. There is some kind of structure to it. Whereas say with your languages or your tennis, there isn't any real structure to it. So it requires a bit more effort. And it, obviously if you enjoy it, then you're just going to be doing it more as well. You're going to be more inclined to do it as well because you know that you have the structure of the course, the teaching, the placement timings and stuff that allows you to, you know, I can clock in and do this and just do this at least for the minimum, say for this period of time. And then I could maybe catch up later, but then I can focus on these other things that also bring value to me. And then that will lets, you know, you become a well-rounded student and person as a whole. And then that's probably what leads to the diversification and people going into various specialties and some specialties, I'm like, why would anyone specialize in that? It's kind of dead or I just can't imagine myself doing that um, either because it's kind of gross or just boring or something. But some people really enjoy it and I can see how much they enjoy it. And it makes me enjoy it, watching them enjoy it so much. But it's going to be all of those different aspects that just kind of lead people down these different paths. Um, and yeah, I guess people also have different priorities in terms of how well they want to do and how much effort they want to put in. So you mentioned that some people will, you know, do everything else. And then, you know, as long as they're getting just passing 50%, just over 50% throughout all of the years in med school, they're, they're fine with that. I think that's a quite an interesting point, actually, because I just think, so if you're doing any kind of degree or course outside of medicine, or outside of any kind of degree that like say like nursing or anything say if you're doing anything outside of that then it's fine to go about that I guess that's your own choice but I think with medicine I personally think that you shouldn't intentionally just make sure that you're just about passing obviously you have to make sure that obviously if there's a difficult exam you have to at least pass it and do what you can but you shouldn't use oh it's only 50% to pass so I'll fall back on that and just let me and I'll do other things I think there's a certain amount of dedication and commitment you make when you go into medicine that you shouldn't be all right with just getting or just about passing. Obviously, there are going to be exams that you do just about pass. There are going to be stuff you find difficult. But at any point, it shouldn't be acceptable in the fact that, you know, like your initial outlook from the beginning was, like, okay, as I'm just going to, you know, try and pass that exam. When you know you could do better if you put a bit more work into it. The point at which where there's not real much point working even more is that point where you're flattening out on that sigmoid curve right going a, a difference between 82 percent to 85 percent okay yeah you might come with three positions higher in the year but in the grand scheme of things that pro that difference might even just be luck at that point um so at that point i think it's all right but 
just because that knowledge that you have a lot of a lot of the stuff they end up testing is like you said you can get away with intuition a lot of it is just your fundamental core intuition that you need you know to be able to make decisions in certain aspects of medicine that should already be a given right and that's about 50 percent probably the other 50 percent is your extra knowledge your extra critical lateral thinking that you kind of have to develop and actually put work into and i think you should try and develop that as much as you can in terms of what you can get in a high yield fashion so when i see people that purposely i see you know not messing about but you know doing so many other things in excess to the point where they know they are even neglecting their exams and they know they are not going to do well or potentially fail and they're already revising for their retakes because they know they're going to have to retake i think that method of approaching i'd say any degree is bad but i think it's particularly harmful with medicine just because of the nature in the way you have to you what you know and your knowledge ends up affecting patients directly you're affecting human life human lives human health directly I don't know. I went on a bit of a tangent, but I have strong opinions. No, I don't about think it was that. a tangent. I think no, I think it's very fair, and I think it's a good point to raise. But at the same time, I would come back to you and say that um, I think you will agree with me. Uh, a lot of students who end up as really good doctors didn't get the best grades. I don't think mm. it necessarily correlates. I think you don't need to aim for the top grades to be a good doctor. I think there are plenty of people who finish in the mid fifties. Um, high 50s and and end up as really really good doctors because yeah so much of being a good doctor is obviously about compassion and um, being safe being careful in the wards knowing when to consult um, for senior advice and just being comfortable in the environment and I think there'll be people for example who spend a lot of time in the hospital setting are very comfortable with patients but just don't um, put in the work to get the you know the minutiae. I don't know how to describe yeah. it. Like the, the, you know, the, 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 the minute the details, grades. like, oh, what gene is expressed in this particular condition? Like that stuff, if you can look something up, you don't need to memorize it. Like, okay, yeah, you might need to memorize it for the exam, but in the long run, you shouldn't memorize it because that's just an, an inefficient use of memory in your brain. Um, but I think a lot of that stuff, like the critical thinking aspect and essentially differential diagnoses and stuff, that's a lot of what comes in certain exams. Obviously, certain exams, like say in first and second year, are probably, you know, are what kind of transcription factor is upregulated in this kind. Like, okay, whatever. But say in third year and onwards, third and fifth and sixth year and your other clinical years, a lot of the exams are, say, clinical case based and stuff and being able to mm. differentiate between that. That's a quite a major part of being a good doctor yes okay you do have the compassion and stuff but there is just an innate knowledge that you need as well to even be able to make a differential diagnosis i can have a doctor that who has the best personal skills makes me feel really comfortable and everything but in the end if they can't effectively and and, and efficiently diagnose or differentiate through diagnoses like you're almost lacking as a doctor at that point so there is a balance where you do need that knowledge as a pure minimum and then everything needs to be based built on top of that in my opinion i think the knowledge is the foundation but so you do need that but then everything that makes you and that'll make you a doctor but to become a good doctor you need everything added on top and built on top but without the knowledge there is no foundation it doesn't matter if you're really good at everything else if you don't have any knowledge to even break down any diagnoses or something then can can you be a good doctor by i do definition? agree with you i do agree with that i think um the way i'd describe it is competency so yeah, yeah. like you need to you need to be baseline competent. I'm I completely yeah. agree with yeah, that. So, obviously. Yeah, so yeah, basically what I'm saying, I don't think fifty percent is baseline 
I, I know that's why it's 50%, but personally, I don't think 50% is, I don't know, I, I'm putting these values on me because I don't want to be in the point where it's like something is like 50-50 for a patient in terms of me being able to diagnose something. Say in an emergency setting, it literally can be a 50-50 kind of thing. I want to have more than like 50-50 odds in me making the right decision for a particular patient. And I know obviously mm. that kind of situation doesn't come across in exams directly. And they're obviously very completely different scenarios, but it seems logical that there is some kind of translation in that kind of ability. So I don't know. How about the student? Because I agree with that. I do agree with that. But how about the student who gets 60 in every exam through med school? Mm. They do their work. They know what they're doing, but they don't go for the details. They are comfortable in each thing. And remember, when they go on to the wards as an mm -hmm. F1, they're not going to be making those life-saving decisions, really. True. Very rarely. Are they. A lot of the time, they're just going to be writing discharge letters, to be yeah. honest. Um, and it's it's not a case of knowing all those tiny details. It's obviously when you go into a special speciality, um, specialty training, you're going to end up having more and more clinical decisions that matter. But early on... The most important thing from what I've seen on the F1, from the F1s and the F2s is just being comfortable in the setting, being able to communicate with their colleagues and being safe around the patient, you know, not doing anything silly. And I think mm. in the early stages, it, that's the most important thing. And I do agree, of course, that you, if you don't know what you're doing, then obviously you can't. Um, <laughs> it's going to be very clear early on when you're communicating with your, when you're trying to present a patient to one of the registrars and you're saying, yeah, I saw this kid and I, I don't really know what happened, to be honest. <laughs> he has abdominal pain, but I'm not sure why. Then, yeah, like um, the doctor, the the, the, the registrars are going to clock on quite soon. But I'm saying if you are that student who gets 60s, 65s, and you you know what you're doing, but you're not going for the tiny details, um, I think you can be just as good a doctor as someone who gets 75, 80, and sometimes better because it depends on what you're doing with your time outside of your studies. Um, mm. So yeah, it's... Yeah. it's I, at the same time, though, I, I genuinely, I completely see where you're coming from. And I think it's a perfectly um, good point that... The more you work, obviously, it's going to correlate strongly with how much you know. And as a doctor, obviously, what you know is very important. So, yeah, it's yeah. definitely not entirely linear, as it might have came across when I was trying to explain it. Yeah, it's definitely not linear, and I'm not trying to say it like that. And I'm not saying that if you get if you're just about scraping fifties or something, doesn't mean you 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 could easily be a better doctor than me. Like, yeah, mm. um, because like you said, it comes down to a lot of things. Uh, but yeah, it's not entirely. Wait, but you linear, averaged but... ninety nine. You averaged ninety nine point five, didn't you? <laughs> That's what I heard. That's what I heard. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> but unlikely. But yeah, I, I, I just think that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel a bit odd inside when I see another medical student being like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll make sure I work to pass the exam." When I know and they know easily that if they just put in a tiny bit more work, they'll pass comfortably. You know, even get into the seventies, eighties with just a little bit more work but it's just they they're just lazy or just don't want to do it there's multiple like reasons maybe they have other priorities and yeah it depends if they're spending a lot of the other their other time and reading into other aspects of science maybe they already know exactly what specialty they want to do and they're like practicing their surgical skills on the side and stuff so yeah obviously that's not going to translate into your written exam right but later on they're going to be a he like a hell of a good surgeon just because they've been practicing all of that going to workshops and stuff yeah. spending all that time so there is that other aspect to it and yeah if you're doing that kind of stuff then fair enough like you know you're making the compromise there so you can refocus really down and nail down on what you want to do later and that's perfectly fine i think as well. something i'm also observing in students um now so i've just started my final stage of med school so after this block now i'm on my peds rotation now so i'm pediatrics um looking at 
just a massive range of child health conditions, child presentations in different settings in the hospital, in the emergency department, in the the, the wards where they're there more long term, in clinics, outpatients. It's really good range of stuff. After this, I'll have psychiatry and then emergency medicine this year, mm. and then um, next year a couple more blocks and then my electives and stuff. So I'm actually starting to get more towards the end and. I think at this point, a lot of students in my year have found that they've had a moment they can reflect on that made them sort of start taking it seriously. And um, I think for me personally, that happened fairly recently, like just being in peds, not one day or one event, but just um, being here on a peripheral placement. So I'm outside of London, I'm going in every day, I'm living in, in the hospital. Um, it's just made in, me... In, in the hospital accommodation, just for clarification, not in the world. Oh yeah, just to clarify. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not just like sneaking in the canteen in the corner. Um, yeah, like um, just to save a bit Although of money. Although those but hospital beds can sometimes be pretty comfortable, you know. <laughs> they do look pretty comfortable, I must yeah. admit. The, the, the reclining. The reclining functions. Mm, mm. You know. But yeah, so... Um, I think for me, it's been quite recently that I've sort of um, found my identity as a med student. And I've really sort of understood what sort of um, doctor I think I'm going to be. Like I can more visualize it now. I can, when I'm with patients, um, I feel different to how I used to. And it's a nice feeling. And I think that each student seems to go through that at some point. Maybe mine was a bit later on. Maybe some students have it in second or third year, but um yeah, it was something that I reflected on recently. And I think those students who, um, as long as they're putting in the work and they're um, competent throughout the whole of med school, they will all have that moment and they will all um, have that point where they realize that they are going to be a doctor and they are going to do the work that a doctor does. And I think it's when you finally shake off the uh, imposter syndrome that everyone seems to get at some point. I don't know if you found that you've had it at any points, but... Um, it's so common for the students to feel like they just got in from luck or that they shouldn't be there or that everyone around them is so much better than them. But yeah, throughout the whole of med school, I've, I, I realized from the start that um, everyone deserves to be there. Like it's not, med school is not the hardest thing in the world. It's just a process and you just have to be dedicated to it. It's not it's not as difficult, for example, as probably doing a pure science degree or, or a pure engineering, engineering degree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't think it's as difficult as that in, in many ways. It's more just the sort of person you are and the attitude you have to life to be a good doctor, in my opinion. That's just from my observation so far. Um, and as long as you have that, then I think you do deserve to be in med school. And it doesn't matter if you're the smartest or the least knowledgeable student in the year. Um, I think the attitude is what's most important. And... Um, yeah, I think it's a nice thing to to be in a community where we are all so different. The diversity is so massive, you know. the The diversity in ethnicity, the diversity um, in the 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 mix of of male and female students, the diversity of age, the diversity of financial background, status. Um, you know, you've got students in the year in my year who are so wealthy. They come from some of the high, the best schools. Um, some graduates from the best universities around the world, they're coming here as postgrads. You've got people in their 30s, their 20s, their teens. And we're all at the same point on a journey. It's just so cool to see, yeah, so many different people coming in at the same the same stage of life. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It's just a, yeah. Yeah, no, because that that's not just for London unis. That's also just for medical schools in general because at Imperial is, you know, notorious for its... <laughs> uh you know extremely high male to female ratio in all the courses except 
in medicine, where it's actually slightly higher the other way around, I think, at least in some years it has been. So it shows that it's just medicine almost in itself, no matter where you kind of study, is has that kind of diversity just because it brings people from all walks of life into it. Whereas I guess with a lot of the STEM subjects, you know, you have there's just a propensity for a lot of males to go into it for a bunch of reasons. Obviously that's changing like for the better. Um but yeah, I think it's just med school in general, just wherever you go will have probably a high degree of diversity, at least if it's in some kind of city or something somewhere. It's a fascinating profession. It really is fascinating to watch the doctors and think about how they are in the doctor's room versus how they are when they go and see the patients because they do put on a... And I, I, I see myself doing it now. You, you put on a persona and that's not a bad thing at all. That's mm. a good thing. Because you you give the patient confidence in doing that, but it's so like um, uh, I'm not divulging the secrets now, but obviously like <laughs> a a doctor just quickly look up the notes of a patient while they've come in roughly, and then they'll see that this patient was on a certain medication, and they'll just go to Google and they'll quickly Google that medication, be like <laughs> ah okay, but then they'll go and see the patient, they'll be like ah I hear you've been taking this right, yes okay, so obviously as you know the side effect is this, and um it's all done to instill confidence in the patient which is a very good thing um but yeah it's just fascinating to see how they they change their persona based on the circumstance they find themselves in and i think it's quite exhausting in a way the fact that they have to keep doing that throughout the whole day um mm. whether they're speaking to staff whether they're teaching whether they're um interacting with patients when they're on their own uh it, it's so varied it's such an interesting job that you have to do and everyone knows about this job it's not one of those jobs like data analyst where like oh, <laughs> oh okay so <laughs> you know, that could what, be a lot of things do? i think the biggest the funniest one is like um i work in it ah okay yeah um, it's my so my sister for a while was she's she was a project manager so no one in my family actually understood what, what she does the thing is obviously the only thing that Pakistanis actually understand is either like engineering, lawyer or medicine. So like yeah. my sister went down into the more, uh, say, businessy route, like project management, that kind of stuff, which is obviously very different to any other profession that's happened in the family. Um, well, to be fair, only my dad's a doctor and then I've gone into medicine, but my sister went down, like she didn't really like that area. So she just did whatever she wanted to. And yeah, even now my parents still don't actually understand what she does. Um, it's, 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 I think that's common with um, a lot of different professions, yeah, that is, obviously, yeah. because it's, it's it's just the one, it's like one of those unifying professions where you see it all around the world. Wherever you go, there'll be someone who deals with healthcare and, you know, you have your nurses, you have your doctors. Um, and because of that, everyone has a perception of doctors. And I find that um, the perception of doctors is quite um consistent as well you know like the the, mm. the role that a doctor serves in society is always going to be the same and it's always going to get a certain level of um respect and it's definitely a profession to um not take lightly maybe that ties into what you were saying before about almost it's a matter of respect that you you're in a profession which is so hard to get into and so important and such a privileged position to be in that we almost owe it to the profession to work hard and do it justice and be the best version of yourself you can be. So I do understand that. I think, um, yeah, and obviously that doesn't just mean getting good exam results because yeah. you know not everyone has have, has the facilities to to do that. Mm. But it might mean um, being proud of your job or taking it seriously, going into your placements, um, saying thank you to the doctors who teach you, um, forging opportunities for yourself, and just taking it seriously. I do agree with that. I think each student needs to do that. And yeah, it can be done in their own way. And I think for me, for example, I'm an example of someone who did it 
my own way. So I didn't, um, I didn't just focus on getting the highest raw mark. I did my exams so far. I've always done my exams to a point where I feel like I know what I'm doing, but I don't follow a rigid structure to my revision or anything like that. I literally just, when I'm in the hospital, I'll make, I'll make like um, earmarks of things that I'm not very good at, if that makes sense. So for example, last week, I realized that I just wasn't particularly good at um, understanding different rashes. So um, over the weekend and now today, I've just been reading up on the different rashes, the different viruses that can cause different rashes and the ways that they can be treated. And um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I go off of like instinct, basically. And um, I don't have like a checklist of things that I should be studying. That's how I like to do it. And um, yeah, yeah, I guess what I'm saying in this bit is just that we all uh, approach it in our own way. Yeah, I basically did it in the same way, but I kind of automated it where with Anki basically, where I wouldn't specifically go out and start studying a particular thing just for the sake of it. I would either just in my wider reading, just out of interest, be reading something, or maybe I'd heard something or maybe something was mentioned in a lecture that I either didn't quite understand or was like, I kind of knew something or I couldn't really remember much about it if it was a concept from a previous year. And I'll just go down reading down that route and just kind of learning, absorbing or revising that kind of stuff whether it's on Wikipedia or some random, you know, literature review on something. And I just randomly learned that way. But the way I've kind of automated it was just with Anki because every single thing that's been mentioned by any kind of tutor or lecturer has been put into an Anki flashcard somewhere for, for me. So it's all there and it will just kind of, obviously with Anki, with the way it just randomly comes up according to the forgetting curve and the algorithm within it, it will come up at a certain time. So it'll just kind of automatically, automatically be revised for me. Well, as in, I'll be mm. revising it, but it would come up without me having to think about it. Just every day I'd kind of go on and oh, what's it going to show me today? And I think that's- I actually... have a challenge for you though. Oh, okay. I have a challenge for you on that. Yeah. Um, did I interrupt you by the way? I, no, I don't no, know no, if no. it. Okay. Um, so with with that, I do have an opinion where if, if you're relying, not relying, but if you're using Anki or um, a platform to- help you revise mm. it means that you don't have to keep self-reflecting in the same way because you it's not up to you to know where you're strongest and weakest in in your studies it's it's figuring it out for you based off the questions you're getting right and your recall um in certain topics so mm. you almost don't have to think about what you're good or bad at that's one of my qualms with um software mm. like that because I, I again i'm i'm just arguing my side because this is what i do like um naturally i'm going to argue for it but the reason why I like the way I do it is because I have to keep reflecting on what I'm good and bad at. And if I don't do that successfully, then I won't do very well because it's up to me to know where my strengths lie and my weaknesses lie. So all the time I'm reflecting on what I know and don't know. I'm thinking, how well do I actually understand this? Because, you know, there's no machine, there's no, there's no software telling me you don't get this because you keep getting this topic wrong. I have to think whether I understand it myself. And I think um, in, in getting good at self-reflecting and, and understanding where my knowledge lies, it's really helped me, for example, in language learning, where I can notice, oh, I, I really am struggling on this certain tense or something like that. Um, I, I can notice gaps in my knowledge more easily. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that uh, one way is better than the other, but I'm just saying like... Um, that's something I, I think I would notice is that mm, um, I yeah. would want to retain that self-reflection. Yeah. So it's literally that it's your level of introspection on everything. Just because I have it automated doesn't mean I get rid of that level of introspection or just self-reflection and thinking, how well do I actually know this? Because just being able to recall it and actually knowing it is very different in the way that you actually end up studying the cards. And 
I've designed the cards to allow me to kind of figure that out whenever I am recalling something. Because a lot of the, when I recall something or when I understand something is different, at least it feels different in my brain. And the thing is, is that having it done with Anki actually gives you a finer level or a deeper level of granularity in terms of what you do and don't know. There are certain facts that I just struggle to remember. It's a certain type of fact that I struggle to remember more than others. It's very difficult to kind of figure that out without that kind of data input being able to see that for you. And the thing is, if there's a card that I select to have hard or repeat more than like six times, I think I've said it to five or six times, it will get flagged and it will come up and it will be flagged so that then I can see it. And then that will either, and then I can see all of those flagged cards and I'll usually go over it in a week and then I'll be able to see, huh, okay, I'm kind of flopping at this kind of topic. If, and usually it tends to come up in clusters, right? In certain topics. And I can see specifically what within that topic, because I will already know that I'm finding this topic kind of hard and that I'm probably not so clear in it in my head. But then Anki will specifically show me which parts I am actually struggling with to a really deep level. Because the way I've built my cars is that everything starts from a very high level surface view and it just gets gradually deeper. So sometimes it's just the surface level that I'm just not really seeing the bigger picture. Sometimes it's just in the middle. I'm failing to see that connection down into the deeper roots. But sometimes it's just a really like really niche problem like or a really niche fact that it doesn't really matter if you don't really can't remember it so then i'll just be like oh, okay whatever it's really not that deep but when it's one of those more surface level things i, I don't know i think anki actually or at least the way i do it gives me i, I already know if i if i find something hard or not or if I, if i'm like struggling with something but then anki just gives me that extra data that i need to really pinpoint and it becomes really efficient that way at least from do you not think though do you not think that you're capable of determining those things yourself? Do you not think you're it's capable of looking at a topic? Far less efficient though. How are you meant to figure out which kind of uh, specific aspect within a particular disease that you are struggling to understand straight away um, and doing that over say 300 conditions and being able to take a mental note of each one? It just takes a lot of mental load off of your brain. And if you just do it with constant review cycles, I, I do understand the point where you're getting from where it can be easy to, to just kind of fall back and relax and just not really take any care. And then as long as you get through your flashcards for the day, you're doing fine, right? But yeah, and some people might probably do that. And I would advocate mm. against that. Like I, I wouldn't recommend that. And I think any advice that I give to people when, like say, if I'm giving advice to younger years that are using my flashcards or if I'm just explaining someone how I use Anki, I always try and make sure that I get across that. I'm trying to do some kind of, like the, the way I've set everything up and the way I review it is so that it sets up like a, a random kind of neural net within my brain. And it actually allows me to see connections between different fields and different conditions that you wouldn't initially see when you study things separately. And that's a major thing, like a huge thing, because you can study- But you don't think you can get that? You do not think you can get that from studying it yourself anyway? Yes, but not in, not in the same way with Anki because I, I'll be reading, say, it will, it, will, it will give me a question about a particular condition or something. And then the next question will be a different question from a different condition in a completely different specialty that you wouldn't even consider studying together at all. You, but you could. Okay, how, how, how would you do that in, a, in an efficient way that doesn't take a lot of time? I, I, I struggle to see, like, I'm not just going to flick through random, like flick and land on a random page in a textbook. I guess you could mm. do that actually, but I don't see how else you could do that in a way that's automated. And then you get all of those other functionalities where it's going to show your weakest links anyway and slowly solidify them in your head. And at the same time, when you're reviewing cards, because 
every card, the next card is just completely random that you suddenly, because those two are put together one next to the other, you're like, oh, huh, that, that's an interesting connection there for, for some reason that you probably won't even realize. I think by taking the, when, when learning something, really trying to contextualize it and understand it and not think about a condition as isolated because obviously any condition plays, you know, has effects across the whole body. It's systemic a lot of the time. Um, when learning a condition, so say recently I've been very, I've been trying to improve on my immunology. It all ties together and not being afraid of going on those tangents, finding a certain um, thing that I didn't know about and going down that train, whether it be one of the blood cancers and then going down the train and realizing, actually, I don't really know how um, blood cells develop and, and um, separate over time. So I need to learn more about that. And then I look at how um, the bone marrow works and, it, you know, they're all tying into each other. Um, but in doing it, I'm just contextualizing it. I'm not being guided. I'm just going off of what I know and what I don't know, because there'll be areas while I'm reading that I just, I get that bit and I just keep going. And then I go, wait, I don't know what this is. You know, and you can go back and forward and back and forward and you're just seeing these things all playing together and you're just literally tailoring it based off what you do and don't know. For that to work, you have to know what you do and don't know, obviously, but um, just by sitting there and really trying to fundamentally understand things and then afterwards trying to sit down and write it out, write out how a process works. I don't know, how does this congenital heart defect work? What are the implications of it? How does tetralogy of fallow work? Where does it start? What are the effects of it systemically? How do you treat it? Why? Why do those drugs work? What, what else do you give those drugs for? So like prostaglandins, why do you give prostaglandins in certain congenital heart defects? What do they do? What can you use when prescribing prostaglandins? How can you use prostaglandins to treat other conditions? Like, um, do, do you get where I'm coming from? I'm not saying that, that this way is better. In fact, I can see how how um, doing it through Anki is better. But like, um, the thing, yeah, I, I, yeah. So to even make the cards in the first place, I would have to do that entire process. But what about someone who didn't make the cards? Just someone who inherited the cards? Good point. The thing is, the way I've made the cards already goes goes through that process. So I go through that. So I'd have to go through that process and make the cards. And then when I study those cards, or if someone just studies that card, so then I would study those cards, right? And then that's me doing it for a second time almost, because I'm condensing all of that information down into chunks that I can put into a flashcard format, right? And then- so You're so making it easier for people. Because you're, you're giving them the information and then, then that, that, the, the network is, is telling them mm. what they do and don't know. But couldn't they do that themselves? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. If, they were, if they knew themselves well enough, could they not figure out these different areas themselves? And that might be better for them in yeah. self-reflection. Sorry for playing devil's yeah, advocate yeah, yeah. here. But, so, but like, okay, um, yeah. I, I, I have always recommended, say, people making their own cards because that's a lot of the learning process for me. But the thing is, is that mm, there's a matter of efficiency that. you get from just, because it takes a lot of time to condense all of those cards down um, into a way that's manageable for a flashcard format and to be able to do a lot of it. it. It takes a lot of time and effort to condense all of it down. And having it all condensed down into a singular format, the thing is, is that I'm not talking about connections within a singular condition or within related conditions or conditions within a specialty. I'm talking about things that will be that seem that are seemingly completely unrelated but they bring up some random connection. Like, I don't know, some random connection between glaucoma and some hematological cancer or something. Just because of a particular immune cell that was mentioned in that card of in glaucoma, and then the next card, happened, which you were studying, happened to be on a hemat hematological cancer. And then it had that same concept for that immune cell. But you would almost, like, what kind of situation would you go through that? You would have to 
you'd be going through specialties for like 10 hours to be able to get through that route. This isn't a connection, a legit one. I've just made up some random thing, by the mm. way. But just, I'm studying a card and then the next card is just that random card that also has that same, or that same immune cell. And I'm like, that's interesting. And then I'll be like, let me, what does that immune cell actually do properly again? And I'll Google it and stuff. And this igniting that kind of connection. And sometimes I don't even need to Google because I just hadn't considered that fact, that connection before, because I'm talking about connections at a really, really low, like small level, um, which kind of helps build a connection between every single condition. I, I understand the, the initial learning process, which you said, that's what I do anyway. And it's definitely the best thing to, well, I mean, I'm biased, but I, I definitely think that is the best thing. When you are learning something efficiently, oh, initially, sorry, you should go through all of the processes and just find out and just go down rabbit holes, basically, in terms of what you don't know. That's why Wikipedia is so good because of the backlinks Incredible, down to yeah. different uh, things. I, I, like, there might be some random, you know, uh, yeah, random cell that I don't really know what it does. And I always Google that cell. And then also you go onto Wikipedia and it just has all the different links to all that cell. And they're like, oh, I kind of recognize this. Let me just open that in a new tab. And I just open all the seemingly relevant links or things that I don't really know into new tabs and I'll just go through and skim them. And then because you're skimming through them, you'll start, and because they're linked, you'll start seeing the back back and forth linkage between mm. all of it. And you're going down that I level. Like that. That's, yeah. that's, what, that's what I do, at least when I'm building the cards. And that's what I do even when I'm studying the cards sometimes. When, you know, it was something from a long time ago, or maybe I just didn't really understand it fully at that time for some reason, or I just somehow managed to gloss over it without realizing. And then I'll just go back into it. And I say, say if you're taking someone else's flashcards or someone else's notes or something, you shouldn't sacrifice that. What, what I say is don't, if those notes are sufficient and good, then use them and don't, you don't really have to write your own, I don't think, but you should still go through, go through and do that learning process of going down rabbit holes and reading and just finding out just, oh, okay, I don't really know this properly. Let me just read about that. And then within that thing, there was something else you didn't really know. That would explain what you were trying to figure out in the first place. So now I have to go into mm. keep doing that and you should do that. But I don't think it's worth the time to go and make that exact same resource that already exists, whether it be notes or flashcards or something. I get what you mean, especially with the flashcards, like um, using it as a revision resource, even as a learning tool sometimes, um, I completely agree with. But I think uh, I think it applies to a lot of areas of life, not using one stream of information mm. as the only stream of information to use. And I'm saying if you're going to use one stream of information to learn and revise, I think it should just be self-reflection, knowing where you're weaker and spending time to really understand it fundamentally, not memorizing facts, not looking at numbers, just understanding how a certain process works. I think that's the most efficient use of time. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think we're kind of agreeing. Yeah, yeah, we are. But that, that's actually huge. Use multiple resources. People get stuck onto one singular resource just because they like it. You know, maybe it suits their learning style and stuff. But just use resources that don't suit your it's learning style It's the same style as languages, as well. bro. It's languages, it's, bro. It's, exactly it's all the, the same. same. It's just learning. Man, that, you know, so I made a video on how to use my year three flashcards, right? And mm. like 30 minutes of it is me explaining the different resources that I used and why I use different things and how I put it all mm. together. Because like, yeah, like I was saying, I, there's so much importance in actually doing that process. And I don't want people to just kind of like, oh, it's already done. So I'll just sit no, and study. It's a, it's a bit of a pet peeve is um, seeing people who don't, 
don't do the thinking in a certain thing. They just follow rules and they're not understanding it. That's uh, one of the doctors who's changed my whole approach to med school I've had on this block. He sits down with us every Friday and he speaks to us for about three hours and he doesn't really bring slides or anything. He just sits there and he just he's just sussing us all out. He's seeing how well we actually understand things instead of just memorizing. So he'll ask you a question and say, yeah, uh, but, but he'll say, but, 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 but how does that work though? Or he'll ask a question related to it and say, what do you think would happen if their sodium levels went down? And then seeing what the student thinks about it, he, he really wants us to just understand things. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know, that, that approach leads to more self-reflection and then, yeah, you, you can be an efficient student. But yeah, uh, the, the multiple streams of information, but I really do agree with. I don't want to keep making the same point. So mm. yeah, I think I'm fairly done in that, in that uh, yeah. part of the conversation. I mean, I, I didn't... And that thing where you had that doctor who would just sit down and just talk and see how much you understand. Mm. I had a consultant, so I was on a placement for three weeks on care of the elderly. So it was a stroke ward. And the consultant there, he he was similar. He was quite the, he, he's quite the character. Um, and he can be a bit scary. Like you don't really know how to take him sometimes. He makes some, you know, awkwardly, sometimes seemingly offensive jokes, but everyone loves it kind of thing. Um but yeah, amazing guy, amazing patient man. It's absolutely insane the kind of relationship he has with the patients. And I guess the type of patients at that point as well. So you're mentioning mm. that thing where, you know, everyone probably has that moment where they have that shift. They're like, oh, okay, I need to start taking this seriously. I'm going to be a doctor kind of thing. Like you were saying earlier, um, th this was it for me, I guess, because on, on that ward, because of the type of patients you were dealing with, they were basically patients in their last probably few months, if not days. I literally had... A, a patient who was literally in her last day um day or days last 24 hours and i'll get to that in a bit but basically the way he would go about teaching us is i don't know so for most of third year i found it mostly a waste of time personally even though it was my first kind of clinical year but it was just extremely inefficient if there's one thing i hate doing it's wasting time and it just irritated me so much and I'm not going to put the blame on anyone. I'm going to take the blame for it. Maybe I just wasn't proactive enough or I was going about it the wrong way or I wasn't really understanding it in terms of firms and how to go about getting the most out of it. Or maybe I was just pretty unlucky in terms of the teams I was put with. Say, because it was really hard to build a rapport with the team um, just in, in certain placements just because the team was so big and it was rotating. And because they were so busy at that time, it was so hard to actually like get in and do something so i would i was i would turn up be there for a long time and stuff and sometimes i would you know stand up because they were busy i would stand around just following them along and you know kind of just help them out try and do something sometimes i would be trying to be really proactive and you know go around doing stuff a lot of the time i just have to kind of do stuff on my own um without much guidance without very with very little teaching so it just kind of i don't know i, I feel like there was a lot more i could be getting out of all of this or out of all of this time and it just wasn't spent too well whether it was because I was unlucky with the teams I was put with at a certain time, whether it was just me just not doing well, but maybe it was just the system in certain places just wasn't so good. I don't know. But basically what I'm saying is a lot of it was a waste of time, except these three weeks in the same hospital. Um, and it was, yeah, with that doctor on the care of the elderly. And literally on the first, basically every single ward round, every single day, me and my partner would have to check the breaths, literally from the first day, check the breath sounds on each patient that we were going across and whatever we would say on the breath sounds would go straight into the book. No questions asked, obviously to a certain extent. Now, the thing is, um, because he has so much clinical, like experience and stuff, he, he was so good. Like I was mesmerized by his understanding and just clinical intuition. He would, 
if there was if we said something and he would be like hmm not quite right then obviously then either he'd tell one of the other doctors to like to check um or he would check himself and we would do the same with heart sounds and it would be me like my partner on uh one patient then i'll do the next patient then you know go around and whatever we would say would pretty much go straight into the logbook and that in itself was so productive it was unbelievable um and just just through like learning that stuff and a lot of the time we would like listen to heart sounds and the thing where it was about understanding it right whenever so when we were starting off in like our first week week and a half he he wouldn't say don't try and give a diagnosis don't try and say you know oh left lower lobe you know crackles or something or whatever crepitations don't try and specify it just say what does it sound like and then when it came to heart mm. patterns especially it was just, just say just describe the sound don't try and say what it is don't try and say what type of murmur, what type, what timing it is. Just make the sound. And really loud, he he would like in the middle of the ward, everyone just look at him, but it's just him, right? And he would be like, does it sound like or like, like what would it sound like? Like really loud. And he'd just be keep, keep, he would repeat the sound for like a minute straight. Um, and he'd keep doing different sounds. And then I'd be like that one. Yeah. And that's the way he would be going around. And so for so long, mm. he would just, try and figure out like what does it sound like just being being able to notice what's normal and not normal just again understanding for it and then after that then at one point he sat us down and gave us a big teaching session like for an hour straight and again no notes no nothing no slides and just keep going on about it and just breaking it down for us and figuring out what it is and then again we'd go back onto a different teaching session and the best thing about it, these days that we had with him were only three hours we'd come in 9 a.m start the ward round do the ward round for hour, hour and a half. And then we'd go and do one or two different teaching sessions on interesting cases around the hospital. That was it done. It was so efficient. And I'd learned so much in that time just because he was so knowledgeable and really good at teaching. And the way he taught us just by putting us out there, getting us into it and then breaking down every single aspect down to a T. It was mm. unbelievable. But that sounds yeah. like a very, very good teacher. He That's was the insane. sort of teacher I aspire to one day be. Yeah, same. But I, if I, I passed know, I, my last years. I, I went a bit on, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think it's good. I think it's a good example of how a teacher could be or can be a good teacher. That's what I would consider to be a good teacher. Um, mm. But yeah, um, the best teacher in my life ever, I think, was my piano teacher. That's just a fun fact. I had her, I moved to the UK when I was um, seven. And then I was taught by her until I left school and went to uni. And um, yeah. The best teacher. A lot of the time would sit there and in the half an hour lesson um, would spend over half of it just talking. We weren't doing piano, but I was learning the whole time and it all went into making me a better pianist. And I'm so lucky that I had her. So yeah, um, obviously teachers are just such a huge influence in your life and they can completely change your approach to yeah. learning something. So yeah. That's the thing. The best teachers are the ones that don't even make you realize you're learning. It, it's like with kids and stuff like when they don't even realize they're doing math problems they're like oh, i'm doing math problems yeah. no it's like that's that's yeah. the point you want to be with it like, at a, mm. like as a teacher make the people, I hope, students don't even realize they're learning i hope one day i can i love i really like teaching i'm not quite knowledgeable hmm. enough in most in, in many things to be able to teach them yet but one day i really hope that i could uh, be a good teacher so yeah, I, i'm trying to I, learn more I, I disagree with that i think you should just start teaching people who are one level below you because the best person to teach the person who is one level below you is the person who is like one level above them. If, if that makes sense. It does because, make sense. Yeah. Yeah. If I've just figured out to do how to figure out a certain math problem, math, math problem, like a 
is it math problem or maths problem? Well, no, it's math. Oh, oh man, I'm, I listen to too much. Like pretty much every, everything I listen to is Americanized. Americans, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know the other say, other day I said route in a voice message. I was like, what oh. the hell? Oh my god. But anyway, oh. um, yeah. So say if you figured out how to figure out a certain problem, say in maths or chemistry or something, the best, and someone else has just got onto that problem or trying to figure it out and struggling the best person to teach them isn't going to be the teacher at that point. It's going to be you because you've just went through every single step that they have probably just be or going or about to go through in terms of figuring out or getting confused at a certain point. And you are fresh with that. So experts mm. are good at teaching people who are nearly experts. Noobs are better at teaching people who are, you know, even more slightly more noob than them. The best teacher for you at your level is the one that's just slightly above you. Um, I agree. I haven't thought about it enough. I think I agree. But also a part of me thinks that the better you get at something, the better you become at something, the more you realise how you can teach it as well. Um, like um, if I'm teaching someone just one level below me, I don't yet understand the topic well enough to know what is it, what what is important in that topic to teach. That's just a counter argument. But um, overall, I do agree mm. with you like the, yeah. because they can empathise with you better. Yeah, but it depends. Yeah, obviously you aren't going to try and teach them something super complex thing. You're only going to teach them what you know and because you teaching what you know for them to get your level is an improvement on where they are and they'll get to your level quicker than an expert trying to teach them because when you get so high, like when you become so good and you're so expert, like even say, say when I'm trying to help my brother with certain biology concepts and stuff, so he was doing like action potentials and stuff. And to be fair, a lot of the stuff from A-level biology in terms of action potentials and nerve impulses is pretty much identical, even at a higher level at uni, at least how we were taught. Um, so a lot, a lot of it's still pretty much the same. Yeah, we'll just learn a few more channels and a few more nuances and whatnot, but it is otherwise it's the same. But even then, I was still struggling to remember like how much does he actually know and, you know... But what if the expert really understands the student and really understands the point the student's at and is a really good teacher? I think that's yeah, the best okay. of all, in that's, my opinion. That's different, but yeah. And if you're a legitimate like teacher and stuff, you're always going to be, you you would have had the experience of what people would tend to get stuck on at certain points and stuff. But the thing is, is that you don't become a good teacher just by starting to teach when you're an expert. Okay. You need to start Ooh. teaching from like day one, almost. I okay. guess that's kind of the we, thing where, sorry, that, that's the kind of thing where I would, whenever I learn something new, I would always just try and tell my dad or brother about it and try and teach them, essentially teach them. This is, so when I was going into the whole investing and finance thing, that's kind of what I would do. I'd read one thing and learn one thing. And then I'll just try and explain it to my, like let's say with the concept of shorting stocks, where you, in a simple way, you make money when the price stock, the price of the stock goes down, right? So usually you buy when the price is low and you sell when it's high, but here you kind of sell when it's high and you buy when it's low kind of, and you make money the other way around. And I was trying to figure out how that works and stuff. And I'd only just figured it out. And I was like, okay, I don't, I didn't know this. I kind of know it now. Let me try and explain it to my dad. Right. And I'm learning how to teach. And at the same time, I'm figuring out all of the holes in my knowledge in terms of what is required for me to explain it. Because you can only explain something if you understand it fully or to, to its best ability, at least. So it's a two-way thing. One, you will learn even better and you'll pick out those holes, which you said were so important to pick out sure. in your own knowledge. So I think teaching is, you, you should kind of be teaching all the way up the ladder. I agree. In terms of, uh, I think l teaching for consolidation of your own learning and improvement of your understanding of something is really good. But ultimately, if I said to you, would you rather learn piano from me from scratch um, for the next 10 years or would you rather learn from the, my teacher who I grew up with? 
I, I think it, you'd probably do better learning from my teacher, who's an absolute expert and, and has taught since she, since as what you were talking about, since she started learning, she started teaching. I think she started teaching when she was about 11. Mm. Um, so she's been doing that her whole life, every step of the way she's been teaching. And now um, she's, she's incredible. Yeah, she's yeah. incredible. She's yeah. an amazing teacher. But she was teaching since she was 11. Mm. So she wasn't an expert. Well, I mean, she could have been, but I doubt she would have, was an expert at 11. It was good or, for her. That was good for her to teach people below her. But I think now what would be good for you, the learner, I'm closer to your level in piano than she is. She's better than me, obviously. But I still think it'd be better for you to learn from her than compared to learning with from me. Or say learning from someone who's... So I've been playing piano since I was two or three. Mm. So I've been playing piano for nearly 20 years. If you were learning from someone who's just started last year, so they're one tier above you, I would still argue that it's better to learn from me than to learn from them. It would be good for that person who who's just started to teach you and you'd still benefit from it. But I still think overall it'd be better to have me not not to blow my own trumpet or <laughs> not to play my own piano yeah. but yeah i think it'd be yeah uh, did, did yeah. you see where i'm coming from i yeah, might be yeah, wrong but. yeah i do and but the thing is i think teachers like that are pretty far and few between or, or like in in my personal opinion uh, and that's not mm. to like degrade a lot of teachers and stuff but i think it just takes time and experience and you know teaching from a very young age just out of habit or just natural ability because and then you kind of stick with it every process of the way. If you're teaching every step of the way, you've got experience of teaching every step of the way. So you kind of retain that, right? Whereas, yeah. and you kind of develop your teaching abilities and learn what works at different levels and stuff. So it's a really big process, right? You need to start from the earliest point possible. So that's my kind of thing to become, like, you need to start teaching straight away or at the earliest point possible to become a good teacher in the long run. And yep, you will become a better teacher in the long run as well. So that that's why I think, and the thing is, is that that person will still at least benefit like one thing from you. And they I, I'm, not, say, I, I'm yeah. not saying become a formidable teacher for them, become their piano teacher. I'm like, you know, just teach them something in piano and you'll get that experience in teaching. And I agree. They'll benefit from the teaching from side yeah. is better. From the teaching side, it's better for you to teach the whole way through. Mm. But I think for the learner, it's still best to learn from an expert. Yeah, but, mm, a lot no. of the time, not all mm. the time, but. If it's, if it's one concept, if, would I rather learn... So, for example, today I learned the clotting cascade from an F2. Um, and I, I think it's better to learn that cascade from him than from a, maybe a consultant a lot, of, a lot of the time because he he actually went to Imperial. Um, he said... He he remembers it, you know? He was only doing it a couple of years ago. This is... He really understands how we thought as students. And so he taught yeah. it actually really well um, compared to the consultants who mm. learned it, you know, a lot of them 40 years ago and it's changed since then and they can't really empathize in the same way. With that, I agree. But yeah. I'm more talking like as a teacher, like through, you know, teaching you how to be a good pianist or um, not just a, a simple um, isolated thing. Like the, the learning of a craft overall, I think you need is better to learn from yeah. an expert because okay, yeah, they know what to teach you. And I, I, I think yeah. we're not arguing different things. Yeah, yeah, I think we're like, arguing different I, things. I don't want like, I don't want to be in GCSE maths and having an A-level student an A -level teaching student. you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I'd actually yeah. want the legitimate teacher. Well, but you could have an A-level student teaching you one of the one of the rules, you know, because if yeah, they've done that rule... they'd probably teach yeah. it better than the yes, teacher. Yes, yes. That, that's exactly yes, what I mean. We yes. agree now. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> and I, I've improved my opinion now because I've never thought about this before. So I appreciate that. Um, and the last thing I wanted to add is that we're in, definitely in the right profession because obviously medicine is all about teaching. So we'll be doing that yeah. for the rest of our lives. Yeah, that, that, I think... I mean, I definitely remember mentioning that on multiple interviews that it's the teaching aspect that's so good about... Mm. uh medicine and it's so lifelong as well like going through every step of the career as well but um i'm aware i'm looking at the time and it's getting later on in the evening and um we've been talking for probably 
or at least five minutes now. So yeah, it's yeah, probably just a bit. just a bit longer than that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So we may <laughs> have to leave it, but um, thank you very much for sitting down with me and having this conversation. It's been really good. Yeah, you're saying like we don't we do, do this again. every other week or something. <laughs> we should yeah, do it again sometime. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe next week. <laughs> oh, it'd be an honor. All right. But um, yeah, I hope you have a good one, Saban. Have a good week. Likewise. All right. Appreciate it. <laughs> Peace. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Getting It. If you enjoyed this episode, or didn't, then feel free to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcasts app or on the Apple Podcasts website. We'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or questions about anything we discussed. So feel free to email us at thoughts at gettingit.co.uk. You can also reach us on Twitter or Instagram at gettingit underscore pod. You can find all the links in the show notes.